I kind of want to set up a little bit the, uh, the speaker here, Lowell Holcalter. I met him uh, eight years ago when I was up in Minnesota, and uh, if some of you know Jonathan Maley. Uh, he asked me to come out on the road and do some school assembly stuff with him, and so I got to meet some great people through that experience, and Lowell was one of them. And so the first year that I came down here at Faith, we brought Lowell and Terrence and the crew, and everybody came in, and we did two schools. The first time we did school assemblies in, in uh, the whole run that we've done over the years. And we were at Manson, and we were at Pocahontas. And, uh, and then just God started opening doors and getting us into other schools. And so now, here we are. This is our sixth year of school assemblies, and we brought Lowell back. And because uh, there's kids that are in those first schools that would have never seen Lowell before. And uh, so we're excited. We've got six total schools we're going to be at, a total of uh, eight different assembly programs, plus the evening program, so about 12 programs in all. Lowell will be speaking at all 12. And at the end of the service, yeah, we're very excited. Lowell, Lowell's like, wait till you hear me speak, you know. Like, uh, <laughs> he, he's one of my favorite communicators. And when I called the director of Youth Alive, I said, can we get Lowell back down here? He is one of my favorites. And it worked out for Lowell to come. And so I asked him, like I said, to share with you, just like you're the students, but then also since we're here to worship together, uh, be able to, to, to place in these moments where the Lord worked in the midst of the testimony. Uh, the Bible says in Revelation 12:11 that we overcome him that is Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. And I think there is power in testimony, so will you please welcome my friend Lowell Holcalter. Well, good morning. Ooh, sorry, sorry, sorry. He did say school. You did say Pizza Ranch, right? I'm all about writing, reading the Bible and getting pizza. I mean, seriously. Anyway, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, now typically we would not do this little section in a school. I mean, we might do it, but that'd be the last time. Um, but I came across an interesting passage of Scripture, and um, it seems like in the, in the last five years, you hear a lot of people talking about peace and the desire for peace. The problem is I don't think people really understand what peace is. We can't manufacture peace. We can't conjure up peace. We can't create peace. We, we cannot make peace happen. And in fact, there's really, I think, a, a misconception that peace is the absence of conflict or peace is the absence of war. But my friends, it's so much different than that. You see, peace is what happens in the midst of trouble. You, we, we are in a lot of trouble. I don't know if you've listened to the news. I don't know if you've paid much attention, but we're in a lot of trouble. And the Bible says that peace comes from one place. You can dig from the very beginning to the very end of the scriptures, and peace comes from one place, and that is the Holy Spirit. He manufactures, he creates through us peace. And so as we go into these schools this week, if you... Even take five minutes and pray one prayer. Say, God, let the peace of God fall onto every life in that school. In the midst of the conflict, in the midst of the war, on behalf of our children, let peace 
rule. In Proverbs, there's a, there's a great passage of Scripture. Proverbs 17, verse 1. A dry crust eaten in peace is better than a great feast eaten in strife. Isn't that true? Isn't that absolutely true? Peace is so much more than the absence of conflict. We will have conflict until the day we stand with Jesus Christ in heaven. There will be conflict. There will be war. There will be troubles. But through the Holy Spirit, we can have peace in the midst of that. I've stood in front of a lot of students over the years. I kind of feel like Russ is bringing me out of retirement. When Richard, the Youth Alive director, called and he says, uh, would you be able to come and, and do some schools for us over in, in Iowa? And I said, well, absolutely. And he said, well, Russ Willer, you remember Russ, the drummer? And I'm like, Russ, yeah, long hair, dreadlocks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember Russ, I, absolutely. Now, if you didn't see Russ in his wild days and playing the drums, I mean, Russ, hey now, he might act all sophisticated up here, but I'll be available afterwards if you have any questions or I don't have any video, but I can make some up, I'm sure. But I've stood in front of a lot of students, and I've stood in front of a lot of schools, and I've been able to talk to a lot of students face-to-face. The stories that I have heard over the years. You know, when I started doing schools about 20 years ago, the stories were something like, you know, my mom and dad, they, they're broke up and it's just me and my mom. Or, you know, my, my, my dad passed away when I was young or something along that lines. And now the stories that we hear at the end of a school assembly as we hang around or as we're picking up equipment or as we're there available student to students or maybe giving some high five as they walk out the door, it's stories as they ask you, hey, mister, can I talk to you for a minute? And they pull you off to the side and they talk to us about the fact that maybe mom is separated from dad and now it's just mom and mom is struggling financially and, you know, and I don't really want you to tell anybody, but my mom's been selling me to other men. And it's mind-boggling to think that this is taking place with our kids. But I want to tell you the message of hope can transcend, can penetrate the darkest of the dark. And I've met some incredible kids. I've heard some incredible stories, but to this day, the most incredible. In fact, I would, I would, you know, we always talk to kids about heroes. We always talk to them about that you need a hero. You've got to find somebody to look up to. You've got to, you've got to find somebody that you, can, that you can grab onto and watch and follow. And, and kids are so desperate for that anyway. And I, I always try to look for that hero. And I know that whole hero thing has kind of been blown out of proportion. And we're not talking about Marvel. We're not talking about Avengers. We're, we're talking about a real-life hero. Somebody that does something for somebody that can't repay them. Or somebody that goes beyond who they are. And, or sacrifices everything that they are. And to this day, my, my greatest hero is a little nine-year-old boy. I hope that doesn't shock you, but it truly is. You see, it was Labor Day. This little nine-year-old boy was with his family. And uh, they were in the backyard, and 
It was the post, it was picturesque. I mean, it was the, the postcard of Labor Days. You know, the sun was shining and the, the barbecue grill was going over here and the kiddie pool was set up over on this side of the yard and this little boy and his dad were playing catch with the baseball and his dad threw the ball to him and it just went back and forth. And, you know, Labor Day, anyway, it's, you know, it's the last big holiday of the summer. It's the, it's the last big hurrah before all the kids have to go back to jail, to school. And this little boy and his dad were playing catch, and his dad threw the ball in his direction, and it was, just, it was just a little bit too high for him to reach. He jumped as high as he could, and just over the top of his glove, that ball sailed, and it landed on the ground, and it rolled to the fence behind him. Well, that little boy began to run after that baseball, but as he did, he fell to the ground, and he laid there. Oh, this dad, he knew his son all too well. He knew he liked to play jokes, and so he waited for a while, and after a while, it just got to be frustrating. And that dad said, come on, buddy, if you're going to play baseball, get up and get the ball and let's play. And that little boy, he said, dad, dad, I can't get up, dad, I can't feel my legs. <laughs> this dad was all too acquainted with that little boy. He said, hey, you know good and well we don't make jokes like that. Now get up and get the ball and let's play. No, dad, I'm not joking. Dad, dad I'm scared. That little boy, he ran up. Or that father, he ran up and he looked down at his little boy and said, what are you talking about, son? What do you mean? He goes, Dad, I don't know. I can't feel anything in my legs. Well, of course, that father reached down and he picked up his little boy. They rushed him to the hospital as fast as they could. They took him into the emergency room. They stabilized him the best that they could and they wheeled him down the hallway to another room. In this room, there was, there was a great big white tube. Inside of this tube, there were cameras that would take pictures of the inside of that little boy's body. You see, they wanted to find out what would, what would take place in that moment of time that would cause that little boy one second to be running across the backyard behind his house and the next moment to be paralyzed. It was about an hour. The doctor came out of that back room and in his hand he had a large envelope. He reached that envelope across the counter to where that mom and dad were now standing. And he said, listen, I can't even begin to explain to you what's taking place in your little boy's body, but I can tell you this, that there is not a doctor within hundreds of miles of this hospital that is trained or qualified to care for your little boy. He said, but I hope you don't mind, but we've made a call on your behalf, and there's a doctor that's willing to fly here at his own expense to look at your son. And so he picked up a pen, and he turned a business card over, and he wrote down a time and a location. He handed that envelope and that card to that mom and dad who were there waiting. And he said to them, don't be late. If that family was ever on time that next day, it was that day when they had their little boy now on a wheelchair as they wheeled him into that doctor's office. They wheeled him in and they stopped at the front desk and they dropped off that envelope. They wheeled him back into a small examination room or some people might call the second waiting room. And they took him back into that small room and they wheeled him right up against the wall and he sat right next to where his mom was on a chair and his dad stood right adjacent to him, leaning against the wall. It wasn't long and the, the doctor came in and his hand, he had that large envelope. Out of that envelope, he pulled some films and he put them up against the wall and he turned on a light that showed from behind. Out of his pocket, he pulled a 
pointer of such, and he, he drew a circle on one of the films, and he says, what's happening in your little boy's body? There's a tumor that's grown out of his spinal cord, or out of his spine. It's broken his spine. It's destroyed two vertebrae. The bones are now leaning up against the spinal cord, and it's cutting off the brain waves from the bottom of his feet to his brain. He stepped up, and he examined that little boy a little longer, and he said, we need to do something. We need to do it quickly. He's already beginning to lose feeling in his upper extremities. That doctor says, what, the way that we see it, we have two options. The first option is this. As he looked at that mother and he looked at that father, he says, we can bring your little boy in. We'll have him measured. There'll be a brace that will be manufactured. and It will fit him perfectly. Through the years, they will, they will redesign that brace to keep up with the growth of his body but it'll keep him sitting upright. He'll sit in a wheelchair that he'll be trained to use by sipping and puffing on a straw. More than likely, will be a high-level quadriplegic, but he'll have his mind, and he'll be alive. And then that doctor, he took his hands, and he stood in front of that little nine-year-old boy, put his hands on his knees, and he looked him in the eyes. He said, young man, I told you there were two options. The second option is your choice. Your mom or your dad can't make this choice for you. And I wish I could tell you that you could make this choice tomorrow or you could think about it, but you need to decide right now. He said, young man, we could bring you in and do an operation where we would cut your back from the top to the bottom. We would try to remove this tumor that's the size of a cantaloupe melon. You know how big that is, son? You know how big a cantaloupe melon is? He says, we're going to tie and take, try and take that out. We're going to be really careful because it's leaning right up against the back of your heart. And there's another doctor that's going to come in, and he's going to rebuild your back by placing metal rods from the top to the bottom and from left to the right. He said, young man, but you need to understand, there are no promises and there are no guarantees that you'll ever walk again. You'll certainly never run and probably never play sports like the other kids. And he said, young man, there's an 85% chance that you won't make it out of the operating room alive. Do you understand what I mean by that? And that little boy looked at that doctor and he said, yes, sir. That little boy sat there for a moment, but then he looked up at his dad. He said, well, dad, we know what we have to do, don't we? And see, to everybody else in that room, and, he, and even to us here today, it's just a simple phrase that he threw out there, but to that father and to that son, it brought back to life a conversation that took place oh, about two weeks before that exact moment in time when that father and son were driving through town, and that little boy looked from the passenger seat over to his dad, and he said, Hey, Dad, hey, Dad, you know what I want to be when I grow up, Dad? You know what I want to do? What's that, son? What do you want to be? Well, what do you want to do? Dad, I want to, be a, I want to be a major league pitcher, Dad. I want to pitch in the pros. See, that father could have looked at that little boy. He could have said, listen, do you understand that one in thousands will ever get a chance to play their favorite sport in college? Do you realize that one in tens of thousands will ever become a professional? Do you realize how out of this world, how ridiculous that dream sounds? But that father didn't say that that day. In fact, it might have been the only right thing that that father said when he looked at his little boy and said, wow, that's a big dream. 
you're willing to do whatever it takes, I believe you can get there. That little boy turned his eyes back and he looked at that doctor and he said, Sir, I want it out. I want you to take it out. That mother and father, they took their little boy home. They checked him into the hospital. It's now Friday. A lot of people had come and dropped off balloons and dropped off cards and had even said a little prayer or two, but now they were all gone. It was just that little boy and his mom and his dad as they waited in this pre-operating room. It wasn't long, and the nurse came in, and she pushed the curtain to the side, and she said, it's time. Meaning it was time to wheel that little boy down that long hallway, down to the double doors that waited at the very end, who on the other side of those doors were Two doctors who would literally take the life of that little boy and place it in their hands. But before they wheeled him away, his dad leaned down. He said, listen, I'll be here when you wake up, I promise, okay? He kissed him on the forehead. And his mom leaned down. She brushed his hair away from his eyes. She said something that probably only a mom and a son would ever understand. And she said, I love you, son. And he said, I love you back. That mom and dad, they stepped away. And that nurse began to wheel that little boy down that long hallway. That mom and dad, they stood in that hallway holding one another, now allowing their emotions to reveal themselves. You see, before, they didn't want that little boy to see them cry. They didn't want that little boy to see that they were afraid, that they were scared, that they didn't know if that would be the last time. But before those double doors opened, before they wheeled that little boy in, his arm came up off of that bed, and you could hear a very slight voice say, Dad, Dad, uh, are you still back there? Mom, are you still there? Yeah, they replied, well, we're still here. Could you come here just, just one more time, Dad, please? Mom, just one more time. Because you see, everybody said it would happen. Everybody told those parents, listen, when, it, when reality becomes real, when the moment comes, more than likely he'll take the easy way out. So be prepared for that. And on that day, I can tell you I made the toughest walk of my life. When I grabbed the, wife of my, the hand of my wife and we walked up, and I looked down in the eyes of my nine-year-old son. Man, I dug as deep as I could dig to try and find something that would bring hope to that little nine-year-old boy. But I had nothing. All I had was tears. In fact, I laid my head on his chest and I just sobbed. And I remember I could feel his arm as he put it around my neck. And he pulled me close. I could feel his warm breath on my ear, and I could feel his lips, and I could hear him say these words, Dad, don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. Man, I wanted to believe that with everything that I was. I wanted to hold on to that. In fact, I wanted to hold on to him. I didn't want nobody to take him. I was just like, everything is fine right now. But those double doors opened, and they wheeled that little boy through those doors, and they closed behind him. They said it would be 
at least eight hours that that little boy would be in his operation, and it was at least that. When the doors to that waiting room opened, and that doctor walked in, and he stood in front of my wife and myself, and he pulled the mask down from his face, and he said, just moments ago, in the operating room, your little boy, he lifted his legs up off the table, and he wiggled his toes. Looks like he's going to be just fine. Oh, man. I didn't really know how to respond that day. I did think I was going to lose my wife to another man when she jumped in the arms of that doctor, started kissing him and hugging him. That doctor thought his life was about to change because when she was done, I jumped into his arms. I started kissing him and hugging him. You see, today I don't tell you that story so you'd feel sorry for me. I certainly don't tell you that story so you'd feel sorry for my son. In fact, he'd be super uncomfortable if you felt that way. I tell you that story to set up what took place because it was about seven months later I found myself at a little league baseball field. Had my little league lawn chair because I was banned from sitting in the bleachers with all the other parents. It happens. Plus, it's way easier to talk to the umpire from back there. Everybody knows they need my help. I sat up my little league lawn chair. I sat there and I watched a little nine-year-old boy. As he walked to the pitcher's mound, the umpire walked out from that little blue bag that he held from the belt of his pants. He pulled out a brand new white baseball and he put it into my little nine-year-old son's hands and he began to warm up to, to pitch his very first baseball game. I gotta be honest with you. It, it was the worst pitching I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, it was absolute chaos, to be honest with you. Balls were flying everywhere. Mothers were in the bleachers telling their small children to come close to them. Please come over here. Batters from the other team were literally standing on the on-deck circle, shaking, begging their coach not to make them go up and bat. Some of the baseballs, in fact, most of them would, would bounce somewhere onto the field. But I'll tell you, every time the ball left that little boy's hand, I jumped up out of that little league lawn chair, and I was like, Woohoo! Yeah, buddy! Way to bounce at the second. They didn't expect that. They didn't expect that. You see, but I was there seeing something different than everybody else. I wasn't there watching a little boy pitch. I was there watching a dream come alive. And in this room today, just like in every, every high school gymnasium that we'll be in every week, there are dreams that are just boiling, waiting to come alive in the lives of young men and women. And I believe with all of my heart or I wouldn't leave my family and I wouldn't do this for the last 25 years, but I believe that as we speak life into those dreams, and as we speak peace into those lives, those things come alive. For many of those young men and women, all they need is for someone to look them in the eye and go, yeah, you can. Yeah, you will. Oh, that baseball game may have been one of the longest baseball games I ever watched in my entire life. Oh, there were people running around the bases, but not because they got a hit, mostly because they got hit. <laughs> the inning was over. The whole team, they, they ran off the field, ran into the dugout. 
I, I really think the other coach just went up to the umpire and said, hey, all of our kids are dead or injured. I think the other kids should bat now. But as our team ran to the dugout, my son ran off the pitcher's mound. He ran to the backstop. I got up out of my little league lawn chair, and I walked to the fence. And Carson, my son, leaned down, and he pulled up the loose part of the fence. And from underneath, he gave me the baseball, one of the many that he had thrown that day, mind you. And he looked me in the eyes, and he said, hey, Dad. Hey, Dad, they, they said I'd never do it, Dad. But I did. I did, Dad. I said, yeah, but he did. I'll never forget that moment. He tapped his mitt twice on his leg, and he ran off the, to the dugout like, that's just the way it always goes. I used to travel with that very baseball until I realized it's probably one of the most prized possessions that I have in my life. I wouldn't trade that to you for a million dollars. See, because every time I walk by that baseball where it sits in our living room, what it tells me is that life has a lot of troubles. There's a lot of difficulties that are going to come your way. There's always going to be a challenge, whether it's through a person or whether it's through a circumstance. There's going to be times in your life where it feels like the entire world is against you. It's gonna, you're going to come through times in your life where you're going to ask yourself the question, is it really worth it? Or should I just end it now? And each one of us in this room, we've been through those times. But when I walk by that baseball, it tells me that there's hope. And I know so many people, I know maybe even what you're saying today is like, whoa, 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 whoa. You said his dream well, was to be a major league pitcher, and now you're talking to me about Little League? Listen, if I've learned anything in my life, I've learned this. You don't make it to the major leagues until you play Little League first. You see, it's the small decisions. It's the little choices that you make today. It's the things that you do, whether you feel like they're big or not. It's the right and wrong choices that you make that build the, the highway that you travel to your tomorrow. You've got big dreams, you've got big goals, but to get there, you've got to play Little League first. You've got to make the small little decisions that build that ladder that will take you to that very dream that you've had in your life. Listen, I know you're going to have challenges. Listen, I know that you're going to have times where you feel like everything is against you. But today, I'm here to tell you that if you will look around, you'll see heroes on the left and on the right. In fact, I bet you if you look really close, if you look inside, you'll see a hero that sits right there. If you have a dream, if you have a goal, if you've got something that you want to accomplish in your life, and you've never had anyone tell you this before, let me have the pleasure of being the very first to tell you that you can, and that you will. Oh, I'm not here to tell you that it's not gonna be hard. I'm not here to tell you that it's not gonna be difficult, or that it's gonna be easy. No. Just as I watched my son, as he sat in that car as we drove through town, he said he wanted to be a professional pitcher. As bad as I wanted to tell him how unrealistic it was. Well, Carson graduated high school 
the phone rang around the time he was a senior. I picked up the phone. Men on the other line said, this is so-and-so, I don't remember his name, but I am a field scout for the Arizona Diamondbacks, and I'd like to talk to your son, Carson. Is he around? Well, I know Carson's friends really well. And I said, ha ha, real funny, Tucker. Real funny. I said, call back again when his mom's home. My bad. <laughs> Luckily, he called back again. He said, sir, sir, please do not hang up. And I don't know who Tucker is, but I'm not him. <laughs> he said, I'm coming through town. We've heard about your son, and we'd like to take a look at him. If he'd be interested. And I was thinking to myself, if he'd be interested, my retirement is interested. That's who's interested. We made the arrangements and I hung up the phone. And I thought about how good God is. When I stand in front of students, folks, I want to tell you so desperately, I want to tell them about the hope in Jesus. I want to tell them that there's hope for tomorrow. If we could look through our spiritual eyes, I really believe we would see the, the depth of the brokenness. As I sit and I look at young ladies as they come up and they want to just spend a, a minute or two, and when I say the simple words to them like, hey, 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 you know you're beautiful. You, you know you're priceless, right? See, I've learned over time that that's probably the only time they've ever heard that in their life. When I look at a young man, I say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do you understand how proud I am of you? And you watch as their back straightens. You know, it doesn't sound very scriptural, but it's exactly what it is. It's the same words that the prophet said when he went by the field of dry bones. And the Lord said, tell those bones to come alive. My son, Carson, got married this last summer. And before he walked down the aisle, like I didn't have a tough enough time the way it was, he said, Dad, come over here for a second. And he handed me a glass case with a baseball inside. And he wrote on that baseball, different ball, same dream. Now I have two baseballs that sit on my mantle. Listen, folks. I know that there are those of you in this room today, and maybe in your life you've been praying for peace. Or maybe you're just praying for an answer. And you've been searching for that peace. You've been striving for that peace. You've been yearning for that peace. Or maybe you've even been praying that that conflict or that pain or that hurt would just go away. Today I bless you with peace. 
that in Philippians says passes all human comprehension. It surpasses what you could even imagine in the midst of your storm, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your hurt. Don't worry, because everything is going to be okay. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your grace that is so hard for me to comprehend, to imagine that in my filth and in my failures that you still accept me. And that you still give to me good gifts and a good life. I thank you that your promise is true, that you will never leave me, that you will never forsake me, you will never forget me, that you know me, you know me by name, you know the most inner working parts of me. And for that alone, I give you praise. You are God, and without you, I am nothing. I bless this body of believers, this pastor and his family, this staff at this church, with peace that goes beyond our human comprehension, that comes only from you, Holy Spirit. And we ask for it in abundance. Amen.